Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. And for clarity's sake, we are recording this episode on Tuesday morning, New York time, Tuesday afternoon, Israel time. Uh, so a couple hours will be in between when this actually airs. So hopefully we don't get it wrong. If we do get it wrong, I take all responsibility whatsoever for any type of big news that breaks in the meantime. And therefore our analysis might be somewhat off. I have to say that even before introducing my distinguished guest, a, a return interviewee to the program, Benjamin Rose, the editor at large of Mishpacha magazine, the major Haredi weekly as well as the author of and columnist of the Rose Report, which is also a podcast that can be found on the Mishpacha magazine website. Benjamin, welcome back. Great to see you, my friend. Thank you, Michael. Great to see you. And uh, I only wish it could be under much happier circumstances like some of our previous meetings. Uh, we hope uh, to see better days ahead. Yes. Okay. Well, you've great introduction to the, I think, what is the overarching uh, issue right now or the overarching feeling that we all have about this unspeakable tragedy that occurred on Lagba Omer in Meiron at the Kever of Shum Yochai in the middle of the Hilula where 45 uh, Jews Rahman and Lutzan were, were died under really tragic uh, and uh, circumstances hundreds were injured in uh, a stampede, it's unclear exactly what all the details were, although maybe you might know more than me being on that side of the ocean. Uh, 45 people passed away, six Americans, two Canadians. Many of it hits very close to home for our community. I myself uh, know people and certainly my family members. Uh, two of those Bakram were in yeshiva with my own son, uh, who happened to have been at the caver at the time, but got a uh, left very quickly and had just had just arrived. So, Benjamin, I guess my question to you first and foremost is it, try and give the sense of the mood for people here. Uh, I know we're all connected. We're all one family. We all feel each other's pain. But give a sense of the mood within the community about the tragedy that occurred last Thursday night. The mood within the community and also when uh among Israelis at large, is one of absolute mourning and absolute shock. And it's totally across the board, with the one or two very notable exceptions, which we're not going to discuss. But I'd say 99.9% of all Israelis, uh, secular, religious, Haredi, are together on this. It's a national disaster. It's something that shouldn't have happened. It's something that could have been prevented. And it's something that we have to uh, work on going forward so that nothing like this ever happens. Because you know, one thing you can say is Lag Bomer will never be the same again. And we have to do whatever we can. And when I say we, that means the government, that means uh, the people who visit Mayron, and that means the police and all of the authorities to make sure that nothing ever close to anything like this ever happens again. So let's talk about the Hilula itself and the, I guess, the patchwork of authority, I'll call it, or the un, and from what I've read and what I understand and having been there, just the different people in control. It's not as if there's one, you go to a, a concert, for example, there's one person in charge, there's one person producing it, there's one person putting it together in charge of all the arrangements. What goes on in 
Meron had long been somewhat of a balagan. Uh, you had different, of course, different Hasidic uh, sects. You had uh, you had Sephardim. You had different. Everybody had their own their own matzav going on. I say, hate to put it in such a yeshivish uh, mm-hmm. understanding, but really that's what it was. And it was a little bit of a free-for-all. I guess a balagan you call it in Israel, free-for-all we call mm-hmm. it in the United States, which in many quarters would never fly uh, in, you know, in any type of more, I guess, sane or less religious type of gathering. And so how did that just come together? And everybody would at least saying now is a miracle that this didn't happen sooner. I, I, I hate to say it, but as a, somebody who's been in government myself, that's not typically the way we operate. So help the, the untrained observer understand how something like that would happen in Israel on the watchful eye of the government and the police. Uh, unfortunately, the eye probably wasn't as watchful as it needed to be. Uh, I was going over my archives today, uh, and I noticed that back in 2015, I was editor of a story that was done uh, for the English version of the magazine by Tzipi Yarom, who's one of our Hebrew language reporters. And she interviewed uh, not only people in Meron, but she also interviewed uh, the person who handles uh, uh, large chasanas for bells. Uh, she also interviewed uh, uh, people from Misaskim in the United States, people from Williamsburg, and how they handle crowd control. Uh, what's what's missing in uh, Eretz Yisrael is uh, simply one word. It's uh, professionalism. In some regards, we're lacking professionalism, and that's something that really has to change. And and that's something that goes across the board. Uh, basically, none of the people who are in charge of Meron are what you could call professional at what they do, in any way, shape, or form. All right, the police are. Uh, the police should know what they're doing, but they made mistakes also. And uh, from what I understand, uh, there were so many things happening on that ramp, at the exit, at different points of contact as the disaster was unfolding, that the police were really unaware exactly how many places needed handling. And uh, the same goes also for the rescue uh, squads that were coming in from Mada, from Zaka, from uh, Hatsala. They didn't realize until they got on the scene exactly how many points they had to get to in order to find uh, all of the people who were... uh, uh, Rahman al-Islam, uh, uh, all the people who were, who were killed and, uh, and who were injured. But, Michael, th- this goes back a long time. Th- this goes back literally hundreds of years, uh, as far as Meron is concerned. Uh, uh, you know, there were people who never left Eretz Yisrael after the uh, destruction of the second base of Mikdash. And uh, the people who were buried in uh, uh, that site, uh, which includes the Rashbi, so there are always uh, basically uh, Galilean Jews who were in charge of the site. Then what happened was, as you got into uh, the 15th century, so you had a lot of people, uh, Sephardi Jews mainly, who were chased out of Spain and Portugal, and many of them moved to Tzvat. And then a lot of them started taking over uh, because they moved to uh, that area, and they became uh, uh, the people who were controlling the site. Then you had the Ashkenazi Yishuv that uh, started in the 19th century, and they also wanted to have uh, a flag planted in, uh, in uh, Tzfat and uh, at the Rashbi Kever. So basically, you've always had uh, these uh, competing groups, if you will, who came at different times during history who feel that uh, they have control of, uh, of uh, the Rashbi's uh, Kever. So uh, the government has uh, made some, I think, very uh, unclear and, uh, and very uh, sparse efforts to try to make Seder, if you will, 
there have been court cases, there have been meetings, there have been all sorts of discussions. There's been a uh, state controller report on, uh, on the state of affairs there. So what they were able to do was at least to get control of the uh, tomb into uh, the hands of the, uh, of the uh, trust that handles all of the Makomot Kedoshim in Israel. But still, they're not there on the ground all the time. You still have all the different groups and different sects. So nobody's in charge, really. Uh, well, I shouldn't say nobody's in charge. The problem is everybody's in charge. But nobody who's really professional is in charge and overseeing it. And, and that's what has to change. Well, change doesn't come easy for our community. It doesn't really come easy in general, but particularly for the Haredi community and particularly for some of the Hasidic groups that are present in, in Meron. Uh, of course, you know, it, it's, I, I appreciate the history lesson because when you, when you think about it, um, this does predate, I mean, this goes back, of course, the, the lighting of the bonfires was, was purchased, quote-unquote, by... Uh, by the the Rizhner or the Sadigera Rebbe's uh, from this from the Sfardim back uh, I think in the eighteen hundreds, and uh, that became a tradition. That's why the Biana Rebbe lights the first Hadlaka. But you have other groups that do their own Hadlaka there, and some of those groups are particularly uh, hostile to uh, to the state. Uh, some of them might be hostile to change. So how how do you approach this? I guess how does the Haredi community uh, police itself in a way? Uh, to come along with those those changes when we're, it's hardly monolithic, it's hardly homogeneous in a way. Maybe to the outsider it is. You can look at a picture of 100,000 Haredim dancing and you can think that they're all the same, but we know, and you know, we know, being the two of us, uh, but explain to the listener how, we, how you make changes in things that haven't changed for a very long time with groups that are very resistant to change. So these are very difficult issues. Uh, you should know, Michael, I'm uh, <clears throat> often interviewed by uh, members of the foreign press here in Israel, uh, mostly uh, European correspondents who are stationed here, and they ask more or less the same question in different words, I would say. And uh, one of the things that uh, I explain to them is that, uh, again, like you said, that uh, our community, the Haredi community, is not monolithic or anywhere as close. And... Uh, what you have to do is you have to understand the different groups and their different hashkafot and where they're coming from. You don't have to agree with them, and you can't possibly agree with every single one, but you have to understand their hashkafa and where they're coming from. And only once you understand that can you start to try to deal with the situation on the ground and try to make some change. So basically, you're dealing with multiple uh, factions. Uh, some, as you said, are uh, inimically hostile to the state. Uh, others of them uh, are not and uh, are very much part of the Medina and very cooperative, uh, including uh, with the police. So when you have so many, uh, so many sects and so many factors uh, that are involved, there's no, uh, there's no one, uh, there's no like silver bullet uh, type of solution. There's no one solution that's going to fix everything. Uh, there's obviously no substitute for dialogue. And, and even among the uh, the anti-Zionist Haredim, there's still dialogue uh, between uh, them and the police at certain times and, and them and the politicians. So basically you have to do this in a very, as we would say here in Israel, Nukudati point of way. You have to do it in a very pointed way and you have to have different approaches for different uh, groups. And that's what's going to make it uh, all the more difficult to uh, try to arrive uh, at change. If we're looking for one solution and bang people over the head with it, it's not going to work. 
if we try to sit down and find the right people in the government, in the police, to sit down with all of the different groups, then I think we have a chance to uh, make progress. But again, it, it requires a professional approach. And someone's going to have to uh, take charge here. Someone's going to have to uh, head a new committee. I don't mean a government uh, task force to investigate, because that's going to happen. But there needs to be professional uh, supervision of, uh, of uh, the site. And there needs to be someone who's going to put everything together and be responsible for everything, almost like a cabinet officer would be. Uh, you need someone who's going to be able to coordinate the police. You need someone who's going to be able to coordinate the crowds and uh, the different uh, Hasidic courts and all of the other people who come and uh, get the politicians on board. You're going to have to give this person authority. And he's going to have to be able to take all of the different conflicting interests that are going on and say, listen, this is how we're going to do it, and it's for the good of all of us. And, you know, I, I really, uh, I wish whoever uh, gets this task, if uh, someone actually gets appointed to do this, a lot of mazel, because they're, they're going to need all of uh, uh, the diplomatic skills that, uh, that they could possibly uh, muster up, and they're going to need all of the skill and all of the backing of uh, the, the professional class that exists in Israel right now in order to get this done. This is Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network. We're talking with Benjamin Rose, editor-at-large of Mishpacha Magazine, a keen uh, observer and commentator on the Haredi community. Uh, Benjamin, can you put into context the wider issues uh, going on in Israel politically, uh, as well as uh, the experience with COVID and the Haredi community, uh, it's for and how this may have played a role. And I point specifically, and not to pick on Aryeh Derry, but it, it has been widely reported that he gave an interview to Israel Radio where the authorities wanted only 9,000 people at the uh, Lagbomer Hilula. And he was proud that he fought that back to have an unlimited number. Uh, Israel, as we all know, doesn't have a government, at least an official government, and uh, we're in the fourth election of a stalemate that's been going on for a couple of years already. How does that play into all of this? And also in the context, of, co of course, of COVID and Israel's incredible success at vaccination uh, with regard to COVID and combating COVID. That's a lot of topics under one umbrella. I'll try to uh, tackle them uh, as I can. Uh, one thing I wanted uh, to give you a menu of different uh, ideas, you know, so you could pick. I should have been taking notes so that I can remember to answer everything you mentioned. Uh, uh, one thing I don't want to do, especially at this very, very early stage, is to uh, assign blame or even apportion blame. Uh, we've all read different interviews with different people who uh, have either accepted responsibility but not blame or some people who've, expect, who've uh, basically accepted neither. And uh, there is going to be some sort of state investigation commission, and uh, the full story will come out uh, only then. Uh, I, I would say, uh, number one, you must have crowd control. If you're going to have 100,000, 200,000 people coming to Mehron, you have to do it in shifts. Uh, how did they do it in the days of the Beis Mikdash on uh, the day that they sacrificed the Karban Pesach? So they had, uh, the Gemara says there were three Katim, there were three groups, and of course we all know that it was very crowded there too, but basically it was well organized. And uh, by the way, that's something that I've seen pointed out even in the secular press over the last couple of days, the secular Hebrew press that uh, writers are talking about, not so much the Korban Pesach, but they're talking about some of the problems that arose on Sukkot uh, 
uh, with the Lulavim and uh, people tossing their Lulavim and Esrogim around and uh, some of the Balagan that was there. And they're saying that basically the Sanhedrin at that time made Tarkanas and things got better. So, again, that's what I was saying before. We're going to need a professional authority in order to... Uh, uh, to make Seder out of this and uh, and not leave it up to just one person who is being pressured in a million different directions to decide how many people are going to get in or how many people won't get in. Uh, that's point number one. Point number two about the COVID. Uh, uh, you know, thank God it seems, at least for now, that the story is just about over in Israel. The vaccination program was very successful. Uh, there's really just a handful of people who are sick and who are being diagnosed with COVID uh, on any given day at this point. I would say that probably in, in my, uh, this is not uh, mathematical, but I would say that about two-thirds of the Haredi community did go along with the uh, mask mandate, and uh, they looked at it as a uh, public health issue, uh, not a political issue like it was in America, where it became a, uh, uh, another uh, flashpoint between uh, Democrats and Republicans. But people really took it seriously and, and uh, took it as a public health issue. And uh, again, there were people who uh, did not uh, wear masks, either because uh, they uh, reject the authority of the state, or they just felt, as a lot of people in America did, that uh, this is a uh, impingement on my freedom, and uh, I choose not to wear a mask. If I get sick, I get sick. Now, again, the, even though there were unfortunately over 6,000 deaths in Israel uh, related to COVID, uh, when you look at the final figures, and we hope these are just about final at this point, about 10% of the country contracted the disease. That's one in 10. And uh, maybe one in 1,000 actually passed away from it. So even though I was very religious as far as my own observance of the uh, mask mandate and, and all of the rules, I can understand people saying that the, the percentages are on my side and uh, I'm not going to play this game. Again, that's not the way I did it. That's not the way I looked at it. But I could understand how people uh, would look at it that way. And as far as the political situation is concerned, look, we've had four elections now. Uh, they've been uh, all indecisive. Uh, what seems to be happening right now is, uh, and, and again, this can all change. Right now I'm talking to you, it's 5 p.m. in Israel. And in another seven on hours from... On Tuesday. five, uh, And yes. at the, in another seven hours, uh, Netanyahu will have to hand the mandate back to President Rivlin if he's unable to... Uh, put a government together, and it doesn't seem like there's much of a chance for him, at least uh, uh, as of this reading. So uh, I think what we're seeing is the end of the Netanyahu era in, uh, in uh, Israel. What I wrote in my column uh, this week in the Mishpacha, I said I think two things have to happen. Uh, firstly, uh, what I did was I outlined what could happen if you have a center-left government. And uh, it's a little scary because there would be a lot of changes made from, uh, from what we're familiar with. Uh, you would see uh, laws on civil marriage. You would see uh, a lot of mixed, a lot more mixed davening of the Kosel. You would see public transportation on Shabbos. Uh, on Shabbos. You would see uh, uh, the Rabbanut uh, stripped of some of their powers. Uh, you would see uh, child stipends cut, uh, uh, which is very important for the Haredi community in favor of uh, higher pensions for senior citizens. I like the idea of higher pensions for senior citizens, but I don't think it has to be an either or. Uh, Israel has to find a way to uh, to accommodate both. Uh, but the second thing that has to happen, and you know, sometimes sitting in the opposition can be healthy, and that was also what I pointed out in my piece. Uh, I think the Likud has a lot of house cleaning they need to do. They've been basically uh, uh, riding uh, Netanyahu for the last 14, 15 years. He has been the longest-serving prime minister in Israel. 
uh, probably the most successful. He's going to go down in history. People are going to write biographies on him, and he'll write his own autobiography, I'm sure. He's going to go down as one of the great uh, world leaders of the late 20th and uh, early 21st century. However, there comes a time for everyone to go. Tony Blair didn't last forever. Uh, Angela Merkel is uh, stepping down at this point. So it was only a matter of time. Margaret Thatcher, uh, 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 Stephen Harper in Canada, uh, even the best uh, and most popular of the long-lasting leaders, there's a time for them to step away from uh, the political scene. So the Likud has to use this as an opportunity to find a new, more dynamic leader. Uh, They have to find more rank-and-file members who are representative of the public and not the party. And as far as the Haredim are concerned, uh, one of the points I made this week is uh, we have to do Cheshbon and Nefesh also. If you take a look at the results in the last election, so voter turnout fell 3% from the previous election. But the actual vote tally for the two Haredi parties, UTJ and Shas, each one fell 10%. So their turnout or their support was much less than the overall drop in voter turnout. They have to think about why that's happening. Uh, in the last four elections, the total representation of the two Haredi parties in the Knesset has not budged from 16. It's a nice number, but every year you've got probably about 15,000, 16,000 uh, young Haredim who are turning 18. So you're talking about over the last two years, four elections, you're talking about maybe 50,000, 60,000 new voters. If anything, the representation of the Haredi parties in the Knesset should have gone up and not stayed static. They, too, are going to have to do a cheshbon and nefesh and see what they can do to uh, re-energize their base, uh, win back the voters who've left them, and also uh, win new voters as well. And uh, this is all what we're going to see, uh, most likely, uh, side-by-side happening uh, uh, as Israel tries to put together a new government in some way, shape, or form, whether it's Lapid, whether it's Bennett, uh, who would be uh, the head of uh, the next ticket of Netanyahu, did indeed fail uh, before the deadline. Uh, there's going to be big changes. Israel in the last two years has suffered a lot of political turmoil, and uh, there's much more ahead. Because you anticipated several of my follow-up questions, so I just want to leave you with one because we're pretty much out of time. Uh, actually, I'm going to go for two. Number one, where are these voters going who are abandoning? Uh, the, the conventional wisdom is that... There was a lot of frustration with Haredi leadership with regard to COVID, and that's I don't that's the conventional wisdom from over here. That doesn't necessarily mean that people are actually speaking to some of these voters. Are they not voting, or are they voting for other parties? And I get. Let's go with that one. It, it could be that COVID was a factor. It's uh, it's hard to say. I'm not sure that uh, the few exit polls that examined uh, the Haredi drift, uh, as I like to call it, uh, got into all of the reasons. I'd have to do a little bit more homework on that. But uh, one thing we do know for sure is that in the exit polls, they discovered that about 3% of uh, Haredim voted for Bitsalo Smotrich's party, uh, the National Religious Zionist Party. Uh, now, a lot of them came from Chabad, and we know that uh, out of all the Haredi uh, groups, so Chabad has probably uh, the strongest uh, uh, version of uh, the importance of uh, Yishuv Eretz Yisrael and uh, not giving any land back to uh, the Arabs and not uh, negotiating anything that could uh, uh, you know, lead to uh, withdrawals uh, from uh, land which uh, you know, certainly uh, in the Tanakh uh, is uh, uh, part of uh, Eretz Yisrael, our biblical homeland. 
So I think a lot of the drift this particular time came through that. But uh, there are also cases where, uh, and I mentioned this in my piece this week, uh, there is a growing Haredi Balabatisha class in Israel. And a lot of them look at the Haredi parties and saying, look, you know, I, I want there to be a kitzbaot, I want there to be child support payments, uh, I want social welfare benefits, but I need a different type of support. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I need a small business loan. I need uh, better opportunities uh, uh, for jobs. Chavar uh, Knesset Gaffney talks about this all the time, uh, where the government says, hey, you know, we want to get more Haredim in the workforce. So Gaffney says, you know, fantastic. So, you know, how about making it a little bit easier uh, for Haredim to get uh, uh, jobs in government? What happens is they get called in for interviews and they never get called back. And there are reasons for that. It's too complicated for uh, uh, the minute or two that we have remaining. Uh, but uh, again, there's there is this Balabatisha class that uh, that think uh, a little bit broader in terms of what their needs are, and there's been some uh, Haredi drift to other parties from that. Uh, also, uh, there was one phenomenon which happened not in the last election but in the previous one, where uh, Netanyahu basically totally made that election, the third election, a referendum on himself, and there were Haredi voters who said, you know something. For the Haredi party, it's not going to make a difference. UTJ will get their seven seats, Shas will get their nine seats. But if the Likud doesn't win and Netanyahu doesn't win, then the Haredi won't be in the coalition at all. So to them, a vote for the Likud was a vote for the man who was going to get the Haredim in the coalition with him. And there were people who just for what they considered to be practical reasons uh, decided to uh, vote for the Likud and not uh, for uh, Haredi party. So there's a lot going on. It's uh, it's Murkav, as we say here. It's uh, it's uh, it's complex. It's uh, it's complicated, and there are many different reasons. And uh, uh, again, the Haredi parties uh, again will have to sit down and take a much uh, keener look at this. Uh, uh, again, also through uh, through professional eyes, uh, whether uh, it's through uh, political strategists, whether it's through uh, public relations people, they're going to have to add that type of component to the decision-making process in order to, uh, in order to grow, in order to be a factor uh, and an ongoing uh, strong factor in uh, the Israeli government. Okay, I got to throw one more question at you because I think this is the glaring, and we don't know exactly what's going to happen. So I appreciate the, the extra time or the overtime, uh, Benjamin. Naftali Bennett might be in the driver's seat to actually, and Bibi already offered him to have a one-year stint as prime minister. Uh, I don't can't think of a time in Israel or maybe in any other parliamentary country where a party with such a small amount of mandates, meaning seven seats, you would have a leader. And what kind of government would that mean for be so reliant on every other party? I mean, seven seats is is nothing within a within a Knesset of 120 members and always needing 61 to operate. You've heard the expression only in Israel. I have. I have. Uh, that's where we are. Only in Israel could, like you say. Excellent answer. Only in Israel could a uh, party with seven seats possibly have the chutzpah to consider that they might be uh, the prime minister. Now, one thing that we have to remember about Naftali Bennett is it's not just uh, a party of seven seats. Uh, Bennett is an interesting character. I'm, I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here and say something that uh, could get me in a bit of trouble, but uh, I, I interviewed him uh, at length when he was first getting into uh, politics. So this is nine years ago. And uh, I, now I haven't spoken to him since, so it's been a long time. But 
the impression that I got from him is, uh, and I've said this many times, not publicly in this type of forum, but he has a lave tov, and uh, I think that comes across. Uh, Bennett uh, was a uh, high-tech mogul. Uh, there's been talk in the uh, Haredi media in the last uh, few days that uh, Israel is about to have, or the Knesset, is about to have their first two billionaires in the Knesset. One is near Barkat, and the other will be Naftali Bennett, because they're both about to cash in on... Uh, they're both about to cash in on some other projects uh, uh, that they've uh, made profit on. So uh, Bennett is a, uh, a, successful, a successful businessman, uh, and he was also Minister of Defense for a short period of time in uh, the previous Netanyahu government, so, uh, and, and he did a good job. Uh, he certainly did a good job for those who are interested in uh, Yesha and Yishuv Eretz Yisrael. He signed a lot of... Uh, uh, orders that allowed uh, Hebron to develop uh, more uh, than they were able to. He unfroze a lot of uh, building projects that were stuck, uh, which is part of the defense minister's job because the defense minister is basically uh, in charge of uh, Yashan, in charge of the territories we captured in 1967. And uh, Bennett, uh, he comes across as a go-getter. Uh, he had a lot of ideas for how to battle uh, COVID. Uh, very few of them were actually implemented. Some say because Netanyahu was jealous of Bennett. Others say that uh, a lot of his ideas weren't practical. But on the other hand, he came across as dynamic and an idea man. So uh, again, even though he only has a party of seven people, he's not, uh, he's not just some guy with uh, very little uh, uh, background or very little uh, uh, experience. He, he's someone who's uh, pretty fully developed uh, a politician and businessman and Israeli, if you will. He knows Israel well. Having Ayala Chakade uh, as his number two helps. Uh, she's a talented person. Uh, she did a great job uh, as Justice Minister, uh, uh, packing the court, so to speak, if you will, to the best of her ability. Uh, we don't really see the results of that yet. It's going to take some more time. Uh, I interviewed Uri Maklev a few years ago, and he said Ayala Chakade would have to be Justice Minister for another 10 years in order to... Uh, have a real uh, right-wing type revolution in the courts, but uh, we were headed in that direction. So uh, if there's anyone uh, with seven seats who uh, uh, basically has the skills to uh, become prime minister, it's Naftali Bennett. Okay, Benjamin Rose, editor-at-large of Mishpacha magazine, uh, columnist for the Rose Report, and listen to his podcast on the Mishpacha website. Thanks for joining us. I, I really appreciate all the insights that you've given us. Hopefully uh, we won't be totally upended in the show in the two days uh, of a hiatus when it comes, when it actually airs on Thursday. But thank you once again, and happy 35th anniversary to you and your wife. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate that. This, uh, that's it for here this week here on Spin Class. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week.